Well, hey, good morning, City Light Lincoln. It's good to see you guys. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I missed you guys so much last week. I got to be south and uh, with our family there, and it was incredible. Jesus is doing amazing things. The, the room had energy. It was so fun to see new people there. It felt like it was kind of half like city light people from here and half new people. So that was a massive win. And uh, one of our core guys, one of the like couples that was part of the first like eight people that prayed for City Light Lincoln, I had been inviting his next door neighbor for a year and a half to City Light. No, it's too far away. And then we plant south. He's like, bro, you don't got an excuse anymore. You know, you got to come to church. And so he comes to church and they loved it. Him and his wife loved it. And I think they came back this Sunday. So huge praise. Mo and Ricky just texted me, said that south was awesome this morning. And uh, another fun story is that there's a, a girl in our church that's a, a just graduated college. She's a nanny. She nannies a few kids and she asked the parents if she could bring them to church because she nannies on Sunday morning. And so they're like, sure. So they bring brings the kids. One, one, the, one of the girls accepted Jesus that morning. Isn't that amazing? Like, gave her not left to Jesus. So, yeah, we're excited. God's doing so much. And we're just anticipating uh, all, all the things, the beautiful things he's going to do. And so Mo kicked us off last week. We're doing a, a couple-week series through our core values, what matters to City Light, what, uh, what's kind of our DNA, what we're about, what we care about. And so Mo kicked us off with down and up in his sermon. Uh, I'll do in this morning, and Ricky's going to do out next week. And so down, uh, really simply, is that Jesus came down for us. That's the first core value. We couldn't make our way up to God. He came down. That's the gospel, the good news, that Jesus made his way to broken humanity, us. Uh, Up is that we respond in wanting to be like Jesus, right? To be formed like Jesus, that he would make us more like himself uh, in our character. And and Jesus does that graciously. In is that uh, we're not just brought into a a relationship with God. We're brought into a relationship with each other, right? Like that's beautiful that if you would say God God's my father, and I would say God's my father, then we'd also mean, well, that means you're my brother, you're my sister. And then out is, uh, is the fact that Jesus went on mission for us, and then he sends us on mission for each other, right, for the world. And so those are our core values, down, up, in, out. If you're in Chipotle this week and someone's like, what's City Light about? Easy, down, up, and out. You know, you get to say it. So that's what we're about. We want to help uh, bleed these into everything we do, and they impact everything. But down is the core value that really affects all the other values. And this morning, we're going to focus on in, and we'll be in Luke chapter 10. So you can open up your Bibles there, Luke chapter 10. Uh, as you're getting there, just a uh, question. When's the last, can you think of the last time that your expectation didn't meet reality? Can you think of that? Like anything come to mind? Expectation didn't meet reality. Okay, follow-up question. Uh, how many of you, just by show of hands, watched the show Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines? Just shoot up your hand if you watch Fixer Upper. Okay, we got a lot of Fixer Upper fans. Well, uh, my wife and I, I love that show. We watch it often. And uh, just like every young couple that watches that show, we think to ourselves, let's buy a Fixer Upper, you know? And so, so about a year ago, my wife and I buy this beautiful home that's built in the 60s. Problem is, it stayed in the 60s until a couple, you know, a year ago. And so uh, we move in, and there's so much to do, right? And we're thinking like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we, we've seen Fixer Upper. We know how to do it, you know? Like, I saw Chip bust down that wall. And so one of the things they say all the time is like, yeah, let's just move that wall. It'll open everything up. So I start taking a sledgehammer to stuff. Little did I know, certain walls are load-bearing, okay? And so it felt like everything was going wrong with this thing. And, uh, and then I'm like, okay. And so I walk in, and our entire, we have like vaulted ceilings, our entire main living room and around is covered in wallpaper. Paper. It was super cool back in the day. It was not really cool in 2018. And so we're like, let's ta- take this down. So my wife and I take all the wallpaper down, and we finally get it down. And we're like, I thought that was it. But then there's like this adhesive layer behind it. I'm like, what is this? So you have to wet the entire wall and then scrape it off. And I'm like, okay. And so hours and hours. And then you got to wash the wall. And I'm like, I never saw Chip doing that. 
do is just busting through walls. That's what I want to do. That's why I bought this house. Not to scrape dry, or wallpaper off. You know, I'm like, dang, it's crazy. And then Kristen's like, hey, you know, there's some areas that we need to patch up drywall and fill this stuff in. Let's save somebody. Do you want to try and do it? I was like, easy. So I watch a YouTube video. <laughs> Friends, ain't the Lord. Lord called me to preach it, okay? Because I'm not a construction worker, okay? Let me just say, I look like my daughter played with Play-Doh on the wall. Like, that's what the drywall looked like afterwards. We call the professional. I'm like, dude, I caused more damage than what it was. My wife might have been disappointed in me, right? And so, anyways, we do that. And then now we got to change out all the electrical outlets because outlets in the 60s don't match up with covers from, you know, the 2000s. And so, anyways, we're just... Everything went wrong. And so if you walked in our house, it's beautiful. It's been a fun, uh, you know, transformation to see all that's happened. But that was a lot of nights until 2 a.m. That was a lot of sweat and frustration and probably disappointment for my wife to me. You know, like, like, you are not good at this. I'm sorry, girl. I preach the Bible for a living, okay? I'll pay someone to do that, okay? And so you have that. And then we spent way more money than we budgeted. And, uh, right, it just didn't, it didn't meet our expectation. It didn't meet our expectation of fixer-upper. We we. My wife and I are not, Chip and Joanna Gaines, okay? Uh, but anyways, I say that because here's why this matters in regards to community. I think a lot of us have a miss, um, a wrong conception of, of what Christian community is, right? We think it's like this, this, this TV version that's like edited of only the funny parts and only the good parts and only the sweet parts. And then we sign up for it. We're thinking that it's going to be easy and fun and convenient, but then we get frustrated, in our misconception, when someone interrupts our utopian idea of what Christian community is, we, we get mad when someone doesn't dress the right way or look the right way or say the right things. We get angry when there's people in our city group that need more, far more than they can give, right? Something comes in. There's, a, there's an imbalance between our expectation of what it actually is reality. And I think we're going to learn in Luke 10 today that the truest displays of love are those that are costly and inconvenient. Right? Like, if we want to display the, the, the love of God, if we want to display the gospel through our community, if we want to point people to Jesus, well, that means that we should look like Jesus in our loving of one another. And Jesus' love was costly, right? Jesus' love for us was inconvenient, and he paid it all for us, and so therefore we should respond to having a costly love for one another. Amen? So that's where we're going. So I just love to open this up to see kind of this in core value to teach through that what community looks like and set a right expectation for what it looks like like to love people. So let's jump in to the story. We'll read verses 25 through 28 to start. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So my first point is that Jesus isn't impressed with your answers, he's interested in your application, okay? Not interested, uh, impressed by your answers, he's interested in your application. And so Jesus is hanging out, and the lawyer stands up and tries to put Jesus to the test. Side note, if y'all, if y'all, let me just give you some pastoral advice. If y'all are ever going to test Jesus, do it sitting down, okay? Because it's, it's, it's shorter for you to fall, okay? Because he's going to be right, okay? So he stands up, he tries to put Jesus to the test. It's like, all the disciples are like, man, I tried that and I got knocked down. Jesus is always right. So anyways, he asks this question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we look at Jesus' answer... Uh, in his response to it, I think it's important to, to know that, that he's assuming there's something you can do to get eternal life, 
right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what the world thinks, right? This is the most common kind of belief, and we are so prone to earning. Like, we love this idea that we can have a checklist that shows whether we're in or we're out, whether we made it or we didn't. And most people think that heaven can be earned or gained by by doing the right things, going to church enough, and not doing that. Most people think that Um, you have to do something or stop doing something in order to earn or maintain God's approval. This is the infamous question, how do I inherit eternal life that people have wrestled with for all of time? And Jesus is going to answer. He's going to point to it. He's going to expose what is going on. So verse 26, uh, he goes in and he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, uh, the man that's questioning Jesus is a lawyer. And so, uh, and lawyers in the day in Jesus' time would actually study God's law and, uh, and help people interpret it. And so Jesus takes him to the law and says, okay, well, what, how do you read it? What do you think about it? And, and, and when Jesus is referring to the law, it's important to know that, that he's referring to the Old Testament, right? The Bible, like that's God's law, right? So he's pointing him back to the Bible. And we have to see that in order for to answer the question of how do I get eternal life, Jesus points to the Bible, right? He doesn't point to philosophy books. You're not going to find the answer there. Or self-help books. You're not going to find the answer there. Or other religious books. No, the, the way we answer the question of eternal life is only found in the Bible. And so I've got to be honest. As the lawyer's testing Jesus, I'm like hoping, as I go through the story, that the lawyer says this ridiculous thing that's so far off that everyone like laughs at him. You know, like, he's so wrong. You know, whatever. like this is this crazy thing. But actually, he, he answers it really well. Like, look at verse 27. Uh, Jesus says, what's the law say? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's a pretty impressive answer. Like he, he literally sums up the entirety of God's law, the whole Bible, into one sentence. And so if you look at the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, um, the first four are really broken up into a vertical relationship with God. They're, they're, they're based on us and God, right? Love him, worship him, honor him, um, all that stuff. And then the, se- the second six actually focus on our horizontal relationships with one another. So don't cheat, steal, you have all those things, right? So that's kind of how they're broken up. And this lawyer knows it. He's been reading it, and and he sums all of it up into one sentence, love God and love people. Like, that's that's it. And in verse uh, 28, Jesus says, man, you've you've answered correctly. You're actually right. And I kind of imagine the lawyer having this, like, smug smile on his face, like, yeah, like, I... (laughs) I got it right. I kind of know what Jesus said. You know, and then Jesus just pulls this twist in at the end of verse 28. just kind of hits him. And he says, okay, sweet, good answer. Now do this and you will live. In other words, awesome. Great answer, bro. Super proud of you. Now just go love people perfectly and love God perfectly and you'll have eternal life. Have fun. You know, it's like send him on this mission. It's like, congrats. Like you've got the right answer. Now go do it. But here's the problem. None of us can love God perfectly. None of us have ever loved people perfectly, right? We fail and, and falter. And, and if we have to do something to get God's approval, if we have to do something in order to get heaven, that means that we will be eternally separated from God and we have no hope and we remain in our guilt, right? Like, is there anyone in the room that wants to raise their hand and say that you have loved God perfectly and loved people perfectly? No, it's impossible. Jesus says, bro, if you want to inherit, if you want to do, you know, earn an, uh, eternal life, just be perfect, right? But the problem is we can't, right? And I think this is the moment that the lawyer is face to face with the fact that he hasn't loved God perfectly and he hasn't loved his neighbor perfectly. But see, like, I want to be clear, the law, like God's law wasn't given to us so that we could see it, try to attain it, and then think we're good with God. 
No, the law was given to us for us to see that we can't keep it, right? For the law was given so that we would see that we need a savior. Like we need someone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's unattainable. We in and of ourselves cannot maintain the law perfectly. And so in light of this story, we need someone to love God perfectly and love people perfectly in our place. But who could do that for us? Who, who would be so gracious and righteous and kind to do that on our behalf? Spoiler alert, Jesus, right? We're going to get to that later, but Jesus would do that. And so let me just give you two ways that the lawyers, uh, the, the Christian's response should be different than the lawyers, okay? As we look at this, two ways that our response as Christians should be different than the lawyers. And uh, the first one's in verse 29. It says, desiring to justify himself. Okay, so the first thing, first way it should be different. When we're confronted with our inability to perfectly obey God, we don't need to justify ourselves. That's the first way that it's different, okay? So we're really good at justifying ourselves. Like, I think we have our doctorate in that, okay? Like, congratulations, you can say your doctor, whatever. You have a doctorate in justifying ourselves. One of the ways we do that is by rationalizing our sin, right? Like, we, we, we just kind of, like, go forth and just say, well, it's not that bad. And compared to the world, like, I'm actually a pretty good person. At least I didn't go that far or do that unthinkable thing, right? We rationalize our sin. The other way we try and justify ourselves is by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely better than him, and I'm definitely better than her, so I think I'm okay, right? We do this all the time. We're professionals at justifying ourselves. But here's the good news for the person in the room that's given their lives to Jesus, that's placed their faith in Jesus. You don't need to justify yourself because you're justified in Jesus. Amen? Like, this is the gospel. This is beautiful. Colossians 3.3 says that your life is hidden with Christ. What that means is that although you fail and although you falter and although you rebel daily, you are constantly and continually covered in the righteousness and life of Jesus. That's the best news you could ever hear, that although we fail and sin, Jesus has wrapped us in his perfection, in his holiness, and in his goodness, right? And nothing can change that. Like on the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins, therefore we are justified. All the wrath has been poured out for your sin, past, present, and future. You're justified, praise God. We don't ever have to justify ourselves. And so, City Light, when you're caught in sin... Uh, when, 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 you, when you're caught in sin and you feel the temptation to justify yourself, to kind of wash it away, confess it, and then you sing the gospel over yourself, right? Like we, you, you sing the gospel, I'm justified in Jesus. We, like the old hymn says, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me, right? That's what we get to sing over ourselves. There's no Need. The gospel puts an end to all attempts to justify ourselves. Why? Because we're justified in Jesus. That's the first way that our response should be different than the lawyers. And the second way, you can look at verse 29. The rest of it, he says, when who is my neighbor? Okay, so the second uh, way that our response is different is that we don't try to loosen the commands of God. We try to live like Jesus, right? So the lawyer's trying to justify himself. We cleared that up. And he realizes that he can't perfectly love God or people, and so he does what we all like to do, which is lower the standards, right? Like in our sin, we so quickly try to find a loophole or a way out or an excuse, hoping that God will cut us some slack. Who, who, who is my neighbor? He asks, trying to limit the definition of neighbor. But in this passage, we see that Jesus radically expands it, right? He expands it. And when I first learned about the gospel, 
and learned about grace and Jesus and gave my life to him, I realized there was this season where I started to just neglect God's law. Because I thought, man, like if, if uh, God's law if won't earn me eternal life and salvation, then why do I even keep it? You know what I mean? Like, there's a practical argument. That, like, if, if, like, I can't keep the law, Jesus kept it for me, then why should I even try to keep it? Grace abounds over my sin, right? But the purpose of the law isn't only to expose and reveal our sin, but it's also meant to reveal and expose what pleases God, right? Like, it's good. His Ten Commandments are for our joy, for our good, for our protection. And so um, Gavin Johnson said uh, from City Light Omaha, he told me once, that the gospel puts an end to all earning, but not all effort. The gospel puts an end to all merit, but not all muscle. You get that? So it's like we obey God not to earn his favor, but because we already have his favor. And so really practically, City Light, that means that just because we don't earn God's favor by loving people well, that we get a free pass from loving people. Does that make sense? Like, like, we could take grace to that level and it would be unhealthy and just say, well, it's all grace, it abounds, like, I don't need to follow God's law. That me- no, like, it would be nonsense to say, I'm going to follow Jesus and love him, but I'm going to live my life contrary to how he lives his life, right? Just to be clear, the gospel doesn't give us license to live however we want. Jesus changes our desires. He changes our new creations to truly love him and love our neighbors. This lawyer tries to lower the standards of God, and yet we look to Jesus and try and live like him, right? Instead of asking the question, who is my neighbor? We ask the question, Jesus, how can I love like you? Who can I be a neighbor to? Amen? And Jesus basically confronts this Lord and says, man, I'm not impressed with your answers. Like, I'm interested in your application, right? And so I want to make this practical for us, City Light, uh, because this is true of us as well. Like, the lawyer has listened to all the right sermons, he, he, he's, he's read all the right books. He knows all the right answers. And having the right answers is important. But Jesus is wondering, hey, how's it playing out in your life? Like, how, how have your right answers actually played into your application? I mean, congratulations that you just finished that book. Congratulations that you just listened to that podcast and you know all those things. But how is it actually playing out? Like, awesome. You read a book on how to love people, but have you actually loved people? And I think that we are more prone to listen to podcasts and read books about loving people than actually going out and loving people, right? Like all of us are thinking, I'll listen to more, I'll read more, but like what are we actually doing about it? I'm confessing, this is tough. And Thabiti Anyambwile, he's a pastor of a beautiful, diverse church in Washington, D.C., and, and he says that there is a gap between our theological answers and our practical living. This huge gap between what we know and what we say and what we think and how we actually live and how we actually love. And I'm just like, it's so true. And so and I'm just thinking, like, like, honestly, what if we just said, hey, for a little bit or even this Sunday, what if I'm, my main role isn't really to, to learn something new but to do something with what I already know? Like, what if we just said, hey, I'm going to stop learning new stuff and just implement in my life the things I already know? It, it would be crazy. City Light, you literally know enough to change the world. And I'm not saying that to overstate it because it's a sermon armor in front of you. I'm saying you literally know the gospel. Like the most powerful news the world has ever heard. You could go to the nations and proclaim it and change the world. You could love Lincoln. You know enough to change the world. Like you literally do. But what, what are we actually doing about it? What are we, how are we actually implementing it? Are we spending more time learning about loving people than we are actually loving people? And Jesus is pleading with us, don't settle for right answers, strive for right living. 
right, this is what he's calling us to. And in response, and I'm confessing, this is hard for me too. I'm with you guys on this. And in response to the lawyer's question of who's my neighbor, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So we're, we'll jump into that. My second point is that Jesus calls us into a costly and inconvenient love for one another. Uh, so in verse 30, Jesus sets the stage. He says, okay, well, here, here's the setting, right? A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road uh, that they're referring to uh, was really well-traveled, and it was really historically dangerous. Okay, so this was like a common thing that would happen. Like, this was, this was somewhat normal, and so Jesus gives, sets the stage, and he's going to list three people um, and their interactions with this man, and he's going to, at the end, ask, hey, who do you think was a neighbor to this man, right? And so the first option is in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so the priest is the first to discover this man on the side of the road, and uh, he just passes him on by, which is kind of a bummer, right? Now, uh, priests uh, lived in Jericho, like a lot of them, and so commentators believe that he was actually heading back from Jerusalem in a holy service coming back, right? So he's coming back and, like, coming back from church. Uh, nope, see a guy I need. I'm just going to pass by. Okay, let's go to the second option and see what happens. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place that saw him pass by on the other side, same exact story, right? And Levites and priests are similar. Levites would kind of oversee the liturgical kind of flow of a service. And so, again, he was coming back from, uh, most likely coming back from a church service, and uh, he just walks on by. So here's the picture. These two guys get done going to church. They're actually leaders, and they're coming home. And on their way home, they see a man in need, half dead, and they just choose to walk on by. Does that sound familiar? Like, I've literally, I'm just confessing to you guys, I've literally had times where I've left church, this church, drove and seen a homeless person or someone in need, and just thought, man, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm going to get home to my family, I'm just going to keep driving. Like, I've done that so many times, on so many different occasions. Like, I'm so guilty of doing what the priest and Levite just did, right? But he gives these examples of these leaders and them not actually leading and using what they just learned in church. Uh, I've just found, as I've just been a human being and walk with Jesus, that we love to learn and we're slow to live out what we learn, right? Like we love taking notes. We don't always like actually applying those notes to our life. And so the Jewish lawyer and other people listening have to be shocked at this, right? Wait, you mean the Levite didn't stop and the priest didn't stop? I figured one of those would have. Like, I can't believe that. Who, who's going to stop for this man? Who's going to be a neighbor to this man? And what Jesus is about to say, say is absolutely going to shock them. Verse 33, but... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, before we go any further, you have to understand, uh, Jews and Samaritans have like, like an eternal conflict, basically. Like, they do not like each other one bit. They're angry towards each other, and it really had to do a lot with racial purity. And so the, um, the Samaritans went off, and they, they were Jews, but they intermarried, so they weren't like pure Jew. There's this huge conflict. They didn't like each other. They did everything to avoid each other. So here's the scene that Jesus sets up. Jewish man, half dead, beaten on the side of the road. Two Jewish leaders passing by. The person that actually stops is a Samaritan. I mean, in their mind, Samaritans are evil. They're the villains, and Jesus is exalting this man is the hero. I mean, it would have broken um, a racial or ethnic tension completely down. This would have been wild to see. This is crazy. And so let's see how the Samaritan actually loved 
this man. Look at verses 34 and 35 together. This is beautiful. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is an incredible display of love. And so Jesus, uh, this is, this is Jesus' example of how to love your neighbor. Okay, This is like the go-to thing. If you just want to know how to love people in Lincoln, read Luke 10 in the Good Samaritan passage. Okay, But in light of our core value of in that we're studying today, we're not only called to love each other as neighbors, we're called to love each other as family. Okay, There's a difference there. And so what I'm going to do today on means of application is actually take Jesus's call to love our neighbors and actually apply it to how we should love our family, okay? But I just want to see, this is Jesus's baseline expectation of how we should love people. Like, it should be even more for the family. And so my goal, my desire that as we read these and we see these kind of basic commands for how to love people, that we'd go above and beyond to love our people in our church and our family even more. Does that make sense? So that I'm going to apply that in that way. And, um, the passage doesn't actually particularly explain why the priest and the Levite passed by. So you might be wondering that, right? Like, what, like why? Why didn't they? And, I mean, there, a couple guesses are that maybe they were afraid. They didn't want to risk it of, like, man, maybe the robbers are still around, and if we stop to help him, then they're going to come and rob us. They're just thinking, I, it's just safer just to pass on by. I'm not going to risk it. Or maybe, uh, maybe they were skeptical. They're thinking, man, maybe he's just faking it on the side of the road, and he's just kind of bait, and, he, and we're going to come, and the robbers are going to take us, and he's going to rob us, right? Um, there's a book called Love Does. It's written by Bob Goff, and it's a beautiful book on really practically how to love people, and he says the biggest lie we believe is someone else, right? Like, I'm in the midst of a situation. Oh, someone else will get that. So maybe the priest and Levi were looking at this man and thinking, this road's so well-traveled. I mean, someone else is probably going to help him. I don't need to. Right? That's what Bob Goff's saying. That's one of the biggest lies we believe in regards to loving people that someone else will. But City Light, I want to point out, there will always be reasons for us to not love somebody. There will always be reasons for us to pass by somebody. And we're really good at thinking those reasons. But if we want to love like Jesus, that means we need to fight those reasons and choose to love. Right? To choose to love. And if we learn anything from this Good Samaritan, we learn that love is costly and inconvenient. Now, I'm just going to walk through a couple traits of this love and, and tell some stories in regards to it to show it. But uh, notice that the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan all see this man on the side of the road, right? They all see him. But the difference is in verse 33. Jesus says that the man, uh, the Good Samaritan, had compassion on him, right? wasn't simply about seeing him or acknowledging he was there, but they had compassion. And I asked myself this week, just convicted, how many times do I see a need and not respond in compassion? Like so often, right? It's just so easy to do that. I'm busy or whatever, and I just go on through my day. And I realized, man, it's easy to come to church and, and sing some songs and listen to a sermon and eat your donut and then go home all the while thinking that everyone in the room is just fine. But Christianity is, isn't fundamentally about good people getting a little bit better. Christianity is fundamentally about broken people meeting Jesus, right? So that means that this room is packed full of needy people. This room is packed full of broken people that have real needs and real hurts that feel like they've really been beaten down and broken and left half for dead, right? Like this room is filled. And I'm one of them. Like I'm a broken person. 
right? In, in light of Jesus healing me, but I'm saying all of us are needy and we feel that. And the temptation for all of us is to function more as a country club than a church, to function more as a museum for the saints than a hospital for the broken, right? For the sick. I mean, that, that's the temptation we will have, but Jesus is calling us to have compassion for one another, to actually care, to have open eyes to see needs and open hearts to actually want to care for those needs, not just for people out there. Those people aren't the only ones hurting. There's people in this building that are hurting. There's real needs expressed in this building. And we can't just think that everyone's just fine. And City Lot, man, I've seen you display this beautiful compassion. About a year ago, a couple came to our church. Uh, their name's Lee and Xavier. And they came with their car and all they had to own in their car and their eight-year-old son. And they just explained, we sat with them, they explained, we're in a rough part in our lives. It's a hard season. We don't have a place to live right now. So a couple uh, families in our church pitched money in together. We got to put a deposit down on a place for them to rent. And so they, we got to move them in to uh, a rental property. And it was, he wasn't going to get paid for two more weeks. He just started a job. So, um, so that was awesome. And then uh, one family in our church said, hey, we, we just want to make sure they can get a hotel and a good night's sleep tonight. And, uh, and so they buy them a hotel, and they get a shower and a good night's sleep. And then families are giving them gift cards for groceries, and people are bringing couches and, and beds, and college students are bringing futons and microwaves and all this stuff. And it was just amazing to see this love. And I'm sitting in their home with them that's literally been basically bought and furnished by City Light, Lincoln Church, and, and just tears in their eyes. And they're just saying, man, we've been in and out of church our entire lives and never seen a display of love like this. No one's ever shown us compassion like this. And I, I'm just, I'm blown away. I mean, I had little to do with it. It was everyone else's generosity. And a couple weeks later, they went to a city group, and the city group preached the gospel to them, and they actually gave their lives to Jesus, actually submitted their lives to Jesus. It was beautiful. Yeah, we're excited about that. It was awesome. And, uh, and just to see Jesus do this was awesome. I just want to say, compassion changes people's lives. And the peop- it's not just people out there. It's people in this room that are deeply needing compassion. We want to be a compassionate people. City Light, it's been beautiful to see you display this. So loving people involves compassion, but it also involves time, right? So in verse uh, 33, it says that he had compassion, and, uh, and in the verse 34, he actually stops. And so uh, the Good Samaritan surely had somewhere to go, right? He surely had something that he was doing or going to, and yet he sees this man in need, and he stops. In verse 34, it says that he bound up his wounds, wounds pouring oil and wine on them. This is personal, Right? It's not this, this quick fix. And we like to think of helping people, loving people like, hey, you doing all right? Okay, see you later, buddy. I stopped by and said, you know, hey, here, here's a couple bucks, you know, buy a sandwich. Like, that's what we want. But it's like, no, it actually is going to require time. And it might not be a quick fix. And you might be jumping into something that doesn't just last a day. It might last months in your commitment to love that person. And this good Samaritan stops and he just pours oil and wine. He binds up his wound for him. It's a beautiful picture of love. And it makes us ask the question, am I willing to drop what I'm doing to help, right? And I'm constantly tempted in my sin when someone asks for help to be like, actually, I got something going on in 10 minutes. I'm doing something right now. I can't really help, right? We're, we're, We're on such a mission to get things done that we forget that we're on a mission for people, right? It's like, congrats, you checked off your checklist, but have you actually loved people in the meantime? And if we're gonna love people, I'm just saying, church, we have to be open to being interrupted, 
like to be joyfully interrupted. Some of my favorite times and memory, like moments of Jesus' life is when some random unplanned moment comes up or a person comes up to him and he stops what he's doing, stops where he's going, and he just loves them, right? He uses that unplanned moment to actually show the gospel. It's beautiful. And City Light, I've seen you use your time to love our church family. There's a family in our church, Seth and Pamela Mock, and uh, they started an organization. uh, um, It's called MAMA's. It's the Midwestern African Museum of Art. It's on 19th and Q Street. I'd love to invite you to check it out. And they just want to, they're they're beautiful. They're Christians in our church, and they want to continue just to show African culture, and it's it's awesome. And so they're they're doing all of this, right? And uh, they have a lot of kids. And uh, not a lot of time to do stuff, right? Not a lot of time to hang out together. And so there's, uh, there's a list in our church people put together to actually watch their kids and care for the kids. Isn't that awesome? Say, hey, yeah, and so they can go on a date night or they can get stuff done in their ministry, what Jesus has called them to. It's awesome. They're saying, hey, we've got time. We're college students or stay-at-home moms or, we, or, or young adults. They have Fridays off. And we just want to help watch your kids so you can go love each other and invest in what God's called you. It's awesome to see Jesus actually compel us to use our time to love people. So loving people involves compassion and time, but it also involves inconveniencing ourselves. In verse 34, it says, the good Samaritan puts the man, the hurting man, on his animal. Okay, so the good Samaritan, or the, the person on side road that's hurt can't walk, he can't move on his own, so the good Samaritan grabs him, puts him on his animal, and decides to walk instead. So he inconveniences himself by choosing to walk. This is crazy, right? It's like saying, hey, I got a car, and uh, if you want to borrow my car, yeah, you can take it, and then I'm just going to walk to work. It's only four miles to work, but I'm just going to walk to work tomorrow or ride my roller blades. You know, it's like a whole different thing, but you take my car. I'm going to inconvenience myself for you. And, uh, and I love this, and I think that, that there's always a cost to loving people. Like, our natural bent to guarding our convenience is one of the biggest impediments to actually loving people, right? But it will always cost us something. And City Life, I've seen you inconvenience yourself for our family. There's a couple in our church that was going through an extremely hard season of marriage and uh, considering divorce, like, very seriously. And uh, it got to a point that was so rough that they said the best thing we can do right now is actually separate temporarily and assess what we want to do. And so the, the wife and the kids were like, well, I don't know where we're going to live. And a family in a church to me said, hey, we, we'd love to take you in. You can stay in our house for free. Like, no doubt about it. You come in. We'll invite you into our home for however long it is. It was just a beautiful invite. And this couple, uh, they're empty nesters. And so their kids are grown and out of college. And if you're a parent that's got kids, you're like, that's the sweet time. You know, like kids are out. Let's sit back, watch Wheel of Fortune. You know, like you can do whatever you want. And yet they're like, <laughs> they're, like um, they're like, they're like, no. Like we, we want to leverage our lives in our home for the gospel. We want to inconvenience ourselves for them. And I love this because they, they, they gave up their convenience of a quiet, restful, organized home to invite a hurting family in. And they didn't just share a spare bedroom. They they shared their lives with them. Like they had dinner with them. They cooked for them. They, had, they ministered to the couple and cared for the couple in city like praised Jesus. Through this uh, example of loving, the couple actually mended their relationship back together, are pursuing each other, a healthy marriage in our church and in community. Amen? Isn't that awesome to see Jesus? Yeah, praise God. <laughs> Empty nesters inconveniencing themselves for the gospel. It's beautiful to see what could happen. I have so many stories, but that's one of them. And lastly, we see that loving our church family involves a financial cost. It involves a financial cost. And verse 35 says that he paid two denarii, which is about two days' salary. So that, that means like he literally gave two days' salary to a complete stranger. 
And, uh, and in our culture, it's like, no, you, our culture says you need to spend your hard-earned money on yourself. Like, you need to treat yourself, right? Like, we need to do these things. And this, this, this passage just punches that in the face and is totally contrary. Like, no, the best way that you can spend your money isn't on yourself but on other people, right? And, and, and I, I just, this is the call. And, this is, and I, I've just realized as I looked at, you know, compassion and time and inconvenience and money— I think a lot of us are, are prone to just kind of do love people in one way, right? Or even in two ways. Or maybe even the really holy people in the room, three ways. But not all of us are prone to love in every single way. We give our time and our compassion and our inconvenience and our financial cost. But what is it for you? And for this last one, it's like financial cost was the last thing to come. It was the last one for him to do. And so he says, hey, I'll pay this. And whatever you need more, I'll pay the rest. doesn't matter. I'll pay whatever costs he has so that he can heal up at the end. And I've seen you do this, City Light. Use your finances for the glory of Jesus. And uh, we're sending 20 people, our college ministry is sending 20 people to Slovakia. Now, if you know anything about Slovakia, less than a percent of the people there have a personal relationship with Jesus. So it's extremely dark, hard soil, all that stuff. And they're going in. This is a beautiful opportunity to share the gospel. And they're raising funds. And there was this kind of... Um, uh, budget, like, kind of miss, and so there's all this money they don't know where it's going to come from, what they're going to do, everyone's raising support, and a couple in our church with regular jobs, living in a rental property, writes a check a couple days ago for $5,000. Says, look, we, we just want to see the gospel go, for, I mean, go forth. Like, this couple is saying, hey, our money isn't ours. My job actually wasn't earned by me. James 1 says that every good gift is from God, so I'm just going to use my finances to love people. They write a massive check to help fund uh, this mission trip. It's amazing. And I have so many stories of how people in the room have personally blessed me or my wife through their finances or blessed the church or blessed so many people throughout this room. It's, it's amazing to see this. And in verse 37, the lawyer reluctantly admits, as Jesus says, like, who, who's been a lawyer? The, luck, the lawyer admits, like, the good Samaritan. And he specifically says the one who showed him mercy, right? He doesn't say the good Samaritan because he's, like, ashamed, you know, whatever. And, and he says, go. You go and do likewise, this is how to love your neighbor. This is how to love people, to have compassion on people, to spend your time on people, to inconvenience yourself for people, and to have, pay a financial cost to love people if that's what it involves. And as we read this story, City Light, I think the temptation is for us to insert ourselves as the Good Samaritan, right? To kind of to think that this story, the whole gist of it, is, is, is God kind of patting us on the back for loving people really well, right? But hear me when I say this. You're not the good Samaritan in this story. Like you and I are far more like the lazy lawyer trying to bend and loosen God's rules and just lazily take a way out, right? You and I are far more like the priest and the Levite who are saying, I know all the right answers and I go to church and I know why I should love people and how to love people, but I'm actually just going to often choose to pass by. But more than anything in this story, you and I are best represented, not in the Levite or the priest or the good Samaritan or the lawyer. You and I are best represented as the man on the side of the road. We were robbed. We were beaten, not by amateur robbers, but by Satan and his army. And they, they took everything, and they didn't just beat you and leave you half dead. No, you were spiritually dead, no heartbeat at all. They took everything from you, and they left, and you were there laying on the ground, and right answers passed you by, and religion passed you by because they couldn't save you. No, you were hopeless until the right person came, and he showed you compassion, and he came for you, and he bound up your wounds, and he loved you, and it's 
it's, it's beautiful, right? He, he didn't just walk by, but he actually came. He didn't just reluctantly come by. He didn't just come by on chance. And Jesus came with one mission to seek and save you, to come after you. And when he bound up your wounds, he didn't just bind them up with oil and wine. No, he actually, on the cross, took on your wounds onto himself. And Jesus didn't just pay a couple coins so that you could stay in an inn for a couple days. Jesus died, paid everything, gave his life so that you and I could spend eternity in heaven, not just a couple days in an inn. Do you see it? The clearest picture of the Good Samaritan isn't us. It's Jesus. Amen? Like, this is the good news of the gospel. We strive to be more like Jesus. Amen? We strive to be more like the Good Samaritan, but our hope is not that we will be the Good Samaritan, but that Jesus was the Good Samaritan for us. He came to us in our hopeless spot, grabbed us, and brought us back to life by dying for us. Jesus confronts the misconception of what loving people looks like. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but it will not be easy. I'm sorry to wreck your expectation of what Christian community will look like, but it won't always be fun. It will be inconvenient, and it will be costly, and it will sometimes be hard, but it will also be beautiful. It will also be rewarding. It will also be the most beautiful display of love that you could have in your life. And so I can promise you that as you dive deeper into our church family, and go into community, you, there will be times where you're annoyed. There'll be times where you're, you're frustrated, where you have differences that are hard to get through. But I can also promise you that those moments are some of the most clear ways that you can display that you really believe the gospel. By loving people that are hard to love, by being in community, even when you want to isolate yourself and choose comfort. About two-thirds of our, of our whole church family aren't in city groups. And uh, so one-third is, which praise Jesus, that's awesome. But it's also hard statistics to swallow, right? That means that uh, as a church, in is one of our core values, our non-negotiable realities. We're a family, and we would say as a church that our primary way to express in is through city groups. Like it's not just through a Sunday morning. It's not just through a random event, but it's actually through a consistent weekly city group that you're involved in a family. And so the reality is two-thirds of our church isn't kind of living out our, our like most standard kind of goal for what community is. And I've sat down with so many of you, and you've explained that there are real reasons why you can't come to City Group right now or in this season. And some of you have really legitimate reasons, and it'll kind of phase out, and then you can jump in. Like, that's awesome. But in light of the reasons of why you aren't in a City Group yet, in light of this passage, like, is it because you think it's going to be convenient? Is it because you don't think it'll cost you? Is it because you think it'll just be easy to get? I'm just saying, you can shoot that expectation down because that's not it. Like, it should cost you something. It should be inconvenient to be in a city group, to be in community. And so my call um, for you is, is if you call City Light your home, like, get in a city group. Be accountable to people. Be on mission. This is not only where community happens. We'll find it next week. This is also where mission happens. Like, this is the primary means. We're not a place with a bunch of programs. We're a people on a mission. And so you're going to see city groups actually are the way we manifest our mission. So my invite, if you're not in a city group, would you get in a city group? Like, would you just make that commitment? And if you're in a city group, can I call you to stay in a city group? Because the opportunity would be like, oh, I came to city group. This is kind of hard. It's really fun, but sometimes hard. I don't really like that person. She talks too much, and he doesn't talk at all, and I want him to talk. And I don't know if I'm well. All these questions will go through. I'm just saying, stay in. Like, press in. And Jesus knew something that's so extraordinarily beautiful. City Light, I'm praying that, that Jesus does this crazy work in our family, that we don't just come here and see each other as people that are doing just fine and leave, but that we actually love 
one another. And so my call is let's be loved by Jesus and love like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good and holy and righteous. And thank you for not just leaving us in isolation. Jesus, I love that you've called us to a family. You've called us to be known. You've called us into being with people. And for the extroverts in the room, we're thinking, yes, amen, that's so good. I love this sermon. Introverts are like, I hate this sermon. But Jesus, it's not about introversion or extroversion. No, it's about you. It's about being known. It's about family. It's about deep relationships. And so, God, I pray, I pray that in a month from now, Father, would that statistic change for our city group? So there be more people committed to community, to consistent community where they're known, where they're challenged, where they're loved, where they're faced with the, the hard things of loving other people. God, would you, would you do that in our church? And I pray, Father, would we love like you love? Would our love for one another and our love for the city and our love for the world be costly? Would it be inconvenient? Would it, it cost us time and compassion and energy and resources and all of those things, God? Because they cost you that. And if we want to display you, Jesus, we've got to display you in light of what you've done. And so let our love be costly and inconvenient, but oh so rewarding and oh so worth it. In your awesome name, amen.